Um, again, hi, if you're walking in late, I'm John Mark. To my right is the lovely Bethany Allen. And to my left, if you don't know Colin, uh, this is his debut appearance on oh, the gosh. stage at Bridgetown oh, Church. Oh gosh, that's too much pressure. Colin is, is our newest pastor, and it's his first time up teaching. Um, Colin, we all work with communities at Bridgetown Church. Colin is our first hire, actually, whose sole responsibility is communities, along with Gavin. Those two kind of tag team it. And the plan is for the three of us to tag team the teaching tonight, so we'll see what happens. Yeah, and if you've been around Bridgetown for like five minutes, you have at least some kind of insight into the reality that we hold community. It's like at a high value. We just placed it way up at the top. Last week, uh, we talked about being a community-centric model of church. That's how we do things, which means that we want your community to be the primary way you experience and express this idea of church. Yeah, and we get that from Jesus of Nazareth. Of course, our church is built around this idea of practicing the way of Jesus, and community is central to that. It's not ancillary or off to the side. So, for example, take a look at Mark chapter 3 if you have a Bible. Turn there. If you don't have a Bible, just slip your hand up in the air, and in theory, an usher will come to you in the next minute or two with a Bible. Mark chapter 3. Let myself and our little team here show you an example or two. To start off, Matthew chapter 3, verse 31. Here's a short story. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, hey, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. So Jesus is in the middle of a crowd. He's up teaching, and all of a sudden, you know, there's mom in the back, and they're like, hey, like, come on, I need to talk to you, whatever the signal is. But notice, for Jesus, it's a teaching opportunity. 33, who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. I can imagine Mary's just like, oh, here he goes again, like, <laughs> right? 34, then he looked at those seated in a circle round him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Notice father is not there. That's a fun one. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Notice that the metaphor that is used here by Jesus of Nazareth for all of his apprentices in one place is not that of a building that you go to as beautiful as First Baptist is. It's not of an event that you go to, I go to church on a Sunday night or whatever for two hours. It's most definitely not of a 501c3 tax charitable organization or some kind of an institution it is of a family. In fact, the Greek word that's used by Jesus that's translated brothers or brothers and sisters in 34 and 35 is Adelphoi. Can you say Adelphoi? Great job. And it can be translated brothers or sisters. If you have an old school version of the Bible, it's brethren. Part of me just, I want to bring that back. Brethren. I don't. You know? It's a great band name. It's it's brethren. (laughs) Brethren. Yeah. It's, it's a little or like late 90s hardcore, could though. Could it be the brethren or yeah, just brethren? The the brethren, although it's kind of male patriarchal. That's, we digress. But <laughs> more literally, all that Adelphoi means is siblings. And this word, Adelphoi, is used not only here, but upwards of 350 times in the New Testament. In fact, it is by far the most dominant word picture that is used for what we call church. Here's one more example. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, just a few pages to the right. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Yeah, we're going to pick up in verse 10. And again, we're just going to find another example of what John Mark is talking about here. Paul says this. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters. There's that 
word, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, again, that word, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, another, I follow Cephas, still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Here, Paul's writing to a network of house churches in Corinth, much like we have here at Bridgetown. Our church kind of has two parts. First, we gather here at First Baptist on Sundays, and we do that kind of by the hundreds. But then, during the week, we gather in our homes, and we do that more by the dozens. We believe in the both and of church, around a stage and around a table. And as we read this text, one thing is clear. That while community can be really exciting, it can be really fun, it can also be really messy. And and Paul kind of starts out in this first sentence and he kind of sets the tone for what he's trying to say. He basically says you've got to make unity a priority. He says that communities should be free of division, which means uh, they, they should be free of like those little arguments or those relational rifts that happen from time to time, from anything that would disconnect you from one another. And then, (laughs) with a lot of audacity, in verse 11, Paul calls out a local community, poor Chloe, like for all time. uh, All she's ever known for. Yeah, and then there's Chloe's house, church. And uh, they had a reputation, apparently, uh, for having kind of the Christian celebrity syndrome kind of thing. You know what I mean? They're like... I follow Paul, I follow Cephas, I follow what, Bethany, Christ, or, whatever, or Bethany, you know. or John Mark, or... No, I'm, I'm in the Bethany camp. Go, okay, yeah. well, that is, that's, that's nice and strange, but I appreciate that, <laughs> yeah. So even they were comparing leaders. They were, yeah. you know, kind of pledging their allegiance to one specific leader, and Paul's like, that's still a division. Get rid of it. And I like it. I love Paul. I do. And I, I don't think he's nitpicking here. He gets that people aren't perfect, even the people of God, and that it's going to be hard, that it actually takes deliberate work if we're going to do this family thing. It, it takes a lot more than good personalities and good intentions. We're going to have to, like, get nitty-gritty with it and go for it. So another example. Turn to Romans chapter 12. Yeah, so Paul's vision for the family of God is realistic. He knows it's going to be messy. He knows it's going to be hard. But that family is still worth fighting for because it's beautiful. Uh, Look at Paul's vision of family in Romans 12, starting verse 9. He writes, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Notice that little line, be devoted to one another in love. Now, normally I love the NIV. It's a great translation, but I think the NIV misses something here. That word that they translate as love is Philadelphia. It's where we get the name of the city from. And it's a compound word between two Greek words. One is philos, which means love or affection. And then that second word, you guessed it, is Adelphoi or Adelphos, brothers and sisters. So quite literally it means brotherly love. So that line could be translated as love one another with brotherly or sibling love. It could be translated be warmly devoted to one another with brotherly devotion. Or even one translation puts it, show family affection to one another with brotherly love. So the call in the family of God is to move past putting up with one another and into loving one another as brothers and sisters. 
And Paul goes on to explain what this looks like in verse 13 through 16. Take a look at that. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. And this is just a small, beautiful snapshot of life in the family of God, that despite the mess and the difficulty, there's this invitation to be a family of brotherly, sisterly love. So, family. Now, after that, every family has a culture. Culture, here's a working definition of it for our time together tonight. This is from Cambridge Dictionary, which is like the gold standard, right? Quote, the way of life of a particular people especially as shown in their ordinary behavior and habits, their attitudes toward each other, and their moral and religious beliefs. That's what culture is, and every family has a culture. Um, For example, the holidays are up next on the docket, Thanksgiving followed by Star Wars, and then Christmas comes after that. Um, So are you ready, yeah? By the way, tickets go on sale tomorrow morning, you guys, with the trailer. It's like the decision tonight, do we watch trailer two or not? I'm really believing for self-discipline to not, but whatever. I'm not going to watch it. Right? Uh, So we digress. And I think about Thanksgiving, which is, you know, first step on the docket. Every family has its own kind of way of doing that holiday. So what's Thanksgiving for you back home in Florida? Yeah. God's country, huh? I've been there once. (laughs) Yeah. I was wearing skinny jeans. And it was like a thousand degrees and a thousand percent humidity, and I just still have like night terrors about you, Florida. I love you, but you made a really poor life choice in y- Florida. To go to Florida? You, yes, no. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> and you made a really great wise life choice to <laughs> move here. You know, we have something called jorts in Florida, which is jean shorts. <laughs> jorts? You could have had those on and had a different experience. Think of the possibilities. Yeah, they're endless. Anyway, Thanksgiving in Florida is glorious. Uh, we have a long-standing tradition of watching the Macy's Day Parade. We're like really committed to that. Okay. But then it's like football. It's like watching the Dallas head, Cowboys like I, lose. I and what? Football, yeah. You love it. I know. Yeah. You're a big fan. <laughs> Um, But then we we actually play like a family, like an unreasonably competitive game of football. Like think the Thanksgiving Friends episode. Right. Uh So it's kind of like that, but aggressive, like even more. So um, so we do that. And rumor has it you're the quarterback, right? Yeah, thank you yeah. for bringing that up. Yeah, yeah, I am. I'm the quarterback, so. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's, the, that's the person that kicks it, right? No, I throw it. Throws no, no. it? I throw it to all the people oh, who make the, the touchdowns. this is the one in tights where you throw. <laughs> that's right. See, we're learning a lot of things here today. But um, my boyfriend, Tim Tebow, plays quarterback, so it's really simple, <laughs> similar. <laughs> Power couple. Just wow. By, <laughs> yeah. So I'm speaking it out by faith, you yeah. know? <laughs> Tim, if you're podcasting, because I'm sure you are, like, she's waiting for you. I'm right here. (laughs) You have until Thanksgiving. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, and I think, too, you know, we don't have, like, a huge family, but our house was always full because my parents were so good at, like, inviting people who didn't have a place to go. So it was always a little bit eventful. You know, you were sitting next to people. You were like, yeah, hey. But it was always fun. And, and it's interesting, so my family of origin grew up in California, Bay Area. We, it was similar in that we always had people over. I'm like, who are you again? Welcome to our, yeah. our family holiday, yeah. <laughs> um, who did not have a place to go. But it was a little bit different in that I'm not exactly sure what football 
is. Right. And so I would like read Lord of the Rings novels <laughs> in the morning before or whatever. I Anybody? Was a yeah. It's a much smaller subgroup of you, it's but amazing. you know who you are. Okay. Um, All right. That must be something. <laughs> and nobody else does. Um, <laughs> because we're fine with the book. But so in my family, Thanksgiving was great and we would have people over, but basically, Christmas is like the climax of the year for our family. So Thanksgiving was like the gateway drug to Christmas. So literally as soon as we were done and we would start cleaning up, we would put on Christmas music for the first time. Bing Crosby, White Christmas, the best Christmas record of all time. <laughs> Hands down, you know what I'm talking about. And then we would watch a Christmas movie. And then the next morning we uh, would get up and we still do this actually, and go cut down our Christmas tree the day after Thanksgiving to have it up as long as possible. But then for you, not from Florida. Not from Florida and at all. It Praise was very God. different for you. Yeah, I, I was raised by an amazing single mom. And uh, we spent 10 years of my childhood living with my grandparents. So Thanksgiving was always really small. So it was me, my mom, my grandparents, two or three others, tops. And there really weren't a lot of traditions tied to Thanksgiving. It just wasn't that big of a deal. Uh, my, my mom and I tried forming a few traditions, one of which was what was called the turkey trot, which I think is a thing here too. And if you don't know what that is, it's, it's a 5K trot. Uh, it's not you, a run. It's, it's not a, a run, it's a trot. trot. Yes. <laughs> That, that you so do. you're like, oh, I could do that. Yeah, I, I, I huffed and puffed through it because I was a chubby kid. So like I, just, I would push through, and not, not to be athletic, because I just simply wasn't. I was, never played sport ball, kind of like you. Sport ball. Oh, sport ball. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> resonate with that. Uh, Listen, but, I'm holding up something over here for half the, long the church Powell's over here. Yes. Come on. But right I was driven because I knew that on the other side of the trot was mashed potatoes. And like, that's what I knew was like waiting for me that day. Uh, but really beyond that, there weren't a lot of traditions. Thanksgiving was yeah. always just really low key and small uh, and not much. And, and our point with all of that is very simple, that every family has its own culture, good or bad, all American, straight down the middle, or a little quirky or unique here or whatever healthy or toxic and dysfunctional. And the church is no different. The church is a family, and just like a family, a church in particular, every single local church has its own culture, healthy or not, good or less than good, Jesus-y or not. So today, to land our vision series, and we've come to the end of our month together, we basically, all we wanna do tonight, it's very straight down the middle, is lay out a vision for cultural markers in the kind of family where God is the father and Jesus is, in the language of the New Testament, the older brother. What are the cultural markers of that kind of a family? Football is not one of them, praise God. Neither is the trot, so we'll, we'll <laughs> go a little bit deeper. And so, as we lay this out, um, it's a vision for Bridgetown Church as a whole, but really what we have in mind is your Bridgetown community. So if you're in one, think of the 15 of you in Alberta Arts District or whatever around a table, think of your community. But also if you have a family or you come from a family or you have a spouse, think of your own family in there. Here are seven cultural markers of the family of God. To start off, the first is? Culture of, drum roll, 
Commitment. That's Everybody's right. Everybody's favorite. Just wanted it's, to start with an easy win. Yeah, I want to just get that out of the way. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, uh, it, when it comes to community, commitment is the imperative um, truth that we have to adhere to. And I know, I know it's everybody's favorite. Uh, in Romans uh, chapter 12, like uh, what Colin read even earlier, uh, Paul says, be devoted to one another. And then in Acts 2, we see this beautiful language of people devoting themselves, and, and the word there is to the fellowship or to people, the people of God that they're around. In Romans, it's like this beautiful, clear exhortation not to be committed for commitment's sake, but, be to, but to be committed out of love, out of, out of a sincere love for one another and out of a sincere love for God. In Acts, we get this like great picture, really clear picture of what it looks like uh, to do community and to do it not just um, by way of showing up week in and week out, but, but as we see later on in the text, and if you just read Acts 2, it's just like explosive and beautiful. We see that, that it's actually about an entirely new way to live. There's a new way that we're stepping into when we begin to commit and devote ourselves to one another. Now, mm. both, these word, uh, both these scriptures use this word devoted, and we don't usually use it a ton anymore, but when, it trans, when it's translated, um, it, it means constant or steadfast. It's like a persevering commitment, which paints a really beautiful picture for us. And, and about what we're talking about when it comes to commitment. It means that we're going to persevere through the awkwardness that some of you bring to the table. Uh, we're going to persevere <laughs> through the neediness that also some of you bring to the table, slash others of us. Um, you're going to persevere through the frustrations and the irritations. It means we're going to be constant in showing up, both physically and emotionally. It means that we're going to be steadfast by choosing love over apathy or indifference when it comes to one another. And it means that we're actually going to have to build trust, and we're going to have to be doing what we say we're going to do when we say we're going to do it. Practically, for a ton of us, it means that um, we're going to have to communicate with the group when we can't make it. And we talk about it a lot, but it's a real reality at play in our communities. And we don't mean communicate via text. We mean communicate over the phone because you're actually committing to real people yeah. that are affected by your presence. And as I've been thinking about this, I was reminded of what Mark Sayers said a couple weeks ago. When he said, we encounter the presence of God through other people, and when they don't show up, we are robbed of God's presence. Right. It, it's that level of commitment. That was such a prophetic word. So prophetic for this moment even. Yeah. So, you know, we know, too, that we're living in a time and a place where individualism is God, where personal preference and comfort often supersedes uh, the needs of others. And so we know it's a challenge. We know for the follower of Jesus, this just means that commitment is going to have to be intentional. It's going to have to be a deliberate choice you make week in and week out to show up and to be, in the language of these authors, devoted to one another. Um, my good friend, and John Mark, and Colin's good friend, Alex Rutman, said this. We were driving in the car this weekend. He just, like, in a moment of, like, insane wisdom was like, you know, <laughs> commitment is the context for anything good that happens in community. Hmm. So, I mean, like, tweet that. Yeah, Alex I mean, it's just like, I'm sorry. I was, he was in the back seat and he's like, you know, and I'm he, like, what? He's not on Twitter, but you no, could take over the internet with that. Right really, there. really powerful. And, and we agree with that. Yeah. We absolutely agree that it's in the showing up that we're shaped, that we're pruned into the likeness of Jesus, but also that we get to encounter the power and presence of Jesus. Secondly is a culture of the ordinary. Uh, one of my favorite lines in the whole New Testament is in Acts 2. Uh, the Spirit is poured out on believers. 
Peter preaches just this banging gospel sermon. 2,000 people come to faith in Jesus. And from day one, there are ramifications on their day-to-day life. Uh, Luke writes in Acts 2, verse 46, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, there's a ton that we can say there, but notice that little line, day by day. It shows up twice in this this text. And just think about it for a second, that 2,000 people come to faith in Jesus. And immediately, the thing that becomes the distinctive marker of early Jesus followers is the way that they follow Jesus together day in, day out, in the ordinary Uh, You see, day by day, attending the temple or the city gathering space. Day by day, sharing meals in each other's homes. Uh, Day by day, celebrating and laughing and thanking God together. For them, being in community was much more than gathering in a space on a Sunday and sitting next to people in a pew. Uh, But that community was what happened Monday through Saturday around a table in one another's homes. It was daily, it was messy, and it was ordinary. And for many of us, unfortunately, this is a far cry from how we think about church in a, in a generation that is over-busy, over-scheduled, and as Bethany just said, hyper-individualized. Uh, there's an invitation for us to slow down, to open up our lives, to be willing to even be interrupted so that community would become part of the ordinary, because that's where the money is. Like, that's when community starts to be really, really sweet. Uh, a few months ago, Maddie and I moved into a new apartment in Northwest, and with the help of our community, a few days after it had snowed, uh, we unloaded our truck, and the first meal that we had in our new home was on this dusty floor that hadn't been swept, and it was Escape from New York pizza from right off 23rd that we shared without any plates uh, on this floor. It was just the ordinary, and it was just a sweet, sweet moment. And you know, in the dream, living in Portland is to have a, a great porch, you know, somewhere that you can kind of sit. And we don't have a porch, but we do have a stoop. So when we moved into our new place, I was... For those of us that... I've been to your house, so I know what you're talking about. But for those that are ignorant to all things stoop, what is a stoop? Yeah, think of it almost as like a micro porch. It's a couple steps that go to a landing, a little strip that you can sit on that lead up to the door. Yeah. It's a stoop, specifically. Wannabe porch. Or a stoop. You know, there's a name for it. God gave it that name. (laughs) Uh, That's what I I think you gave it that name. (laughs) And, you know, so I had this stoop, and I had this brilliant idea. Summer rolled around. I thought, I'm going to text, I'm going to text Matt, I'm going to text Brenton, two guys in my community, and say, hey, guys, come have a beer on my stoop. Like, come hang out with me on the stoop. And you know what they did? What is a stoop? Yeah. You know what they did? They didn't say that. What they did is they laughed at me. Like the little ha-ha thing that you can do on iOS now, where you can like, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. You hold it down, the little ha-ha pops up. Matt Zig did that to me. He mocked the stoop. Um, But... But they came over, and they, they had a beer. And before long, uh, Matt would be walking the neighborhood with Rylan, and he would text me and say, hey, can I come over to the stoop? And then Matt and Kate would come, and then Matt and Kate and Brenton and Nicole. And before long, but by the time summer was starting to wind down, the stoop had kind of become this ordinary gathering place for our community. And as, as silly as that is, we kind of got this taste of what's it like to have community be something that's ordinary, where we can be interrupted, where people are coming in day, on, day in and day out. 
Uh, I love that story. Third, if you're taking notes, is a culture of justice. Take a look at this one more time from Acts 2. Quote, all the believers were together and had everything in common. Just think about that. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Um, Here's another one from a decade or two down the road, Acts 4. All the believers were one in heart and mind. Okay, that sounds like kind of churchy, whatever. Here's what it actually is like. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. So this isn't my car, this isn't my apartment, this isn't my backpack, this isn't my frequent flyer mileage or whatever. Like, this is ours as the family of God. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, Jesus back from the dead, and now I just pay close attention. And God's grace, uh, that's a moniker for his empowering presence, was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy persons among them. Next slide. From time to time, those who own land or houses or a 401k or, don't sell that, IRA, whatever, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. I think that is striking that God's grace was so powerfully at work among them that, now if you're anything like me, I'm expecting the next line to read, so-and-so like was raised from the dead, or there was a sign, or there was a wonder, there was a miracle here, thousands of people like were baptized or whatever, and that's all in the story too, but that's not the line. The striking line is so powerfully at work among them that they sold a home, an apartment, a possession, a thing, whatever, and there were, quote, no needy persons among them. Now, what Luke, who's the writer of of Acts, which is a history book about the early church, what he's saying is this is a biblical theology of justice. If you've ever read, in particular, the Old Testament, which gets a bad rap a lot right now, actually, it is basically the best collection of writings I've ever read on justice. Like, it is all about justice, um, or in the language of the Hebrew prophets, righteousness and justice, this twin phrase used. And a biblical theology of justice starts in Genesis with a man by the name of Abraham, runs all the way through. You have the Hebrew prophets who are like over-the-top, angry, passionate, zealous for justice. Luke is saying this is every prophecy about the future kind of um, community of righteousness and justice coming to pass, but not in a nation-state not in a political leader or political party or even a political theory, but actually in a family, in the church where there is justice. And from the early church, we learned something that I think is fascinating, and it's that if you're anything like me, I think of justice as something that we do outside of the church, and it is. I think of refugee, when I hear justice, I think of Refugee Care Collective. How many of you are involved in that? I know a number of you are. I think of Embrace Oregon, all of you involved in foster care system. Um, how, have you, how many of you do just foster care night out? Like tons of you. So I think of that kind of stuff. And you are at work all through the city, um, hundreds of you, to do justice. But actually, first and foremost, justice is something that we do inside the church. Later in the New Testament, Paul flat out says, let us do good to all, quote, especially those who belong to the household of faith. So first things first, your own house in order. Whatever your political theory is, and we have people from both sides of the aisle here, it's common knowledge that justice is best done in a family or a community. That's why it's so hard for the federal government to do justice well, because a government program, no matter how smart or ingenious it is, can't match the depth ever of a family, that depth of relationship, and all that comes with a family, not just money, but emotional support, accountability, mentorship, parenting, like hard, tough love, like all of, no 
check, no handout, no system, no agent once a month, like nobody can match that. Don't misread me here. I'm not saying that welfare is bad. I'm saying that family is better. And so our end goal for the family that is Bridgetown Church, in particular for the family that is your Bridgetown community, is that we could all say uh, with the book of Acts, quote, there is no needy persons. Like there is no need there. Oh, that community, there is no needy persons among them. That community, no needy persons among them. Can that be said of your Bridgetown community? Can that be said of mine? Can that be said of our church as a whole? Practically what that means is, you know, Bethany said a thing about commitment. Because we live in such a flaky cultural moment, we actually have this commitment doc that we start every new community with, and most of you are like, yeah, I know about that. I dread it. And we go through it once a year. Hopefully, you went through it a few weeks ago. If not, do it this coming Tuesday night or whatever night you meet with your community. And one of the things that we, and it's basically a set of expectations for each and every community. And one of the things that we commit to is to share resources. If anybody is ever in need in that community, we actually commit to share what whatever we have that's extra to help each other. There have been seasons in my own community where there were people in need. There was a season where we, um, for, a num- for quite a while actually, we had to help this one person pay rent because they could not make it. We had to buy groceries every single month. We had to readjust our budgets as a community to do it. There was another season where we had to provide childcare for a while and a few other, and we're through that season now, and now I have a bunch of like wealthy people who um, bring really good wine every Tuesday night. I drink more good wine now than ever before. We eat well. Uh, We went on vacation together. It was fantastic. So it's great, but actually we all miss it. Isn't that weird? Like, we have more money now that I don't, but I actually miss that. So we just started actually a justice fund, or we just call it a blessing fund. We elected a treasurer, and we just, every month, we, there's one Tuesday night, we just throw whatever cash we have in, if it's 10 bucks, if it's 100 bucks, whatever, and then we just keep our eyes open for people in need at our church, in our neighborhood, in the school system, or whatever, because we have extra, and we're a community of God. We're the family of God. And central to that, central to the heartbeat of the God that we call Father is a culture of justice. Yeah, Yeah, next, a culture of hospitality. All throughout the scriptures, we find hospitality central to life and community. Uh, A few scriptures on that. Romans 12 is like really clear and deliberate. Paul says, practice hospitality, period. That's all. Next, Hebrews, he says, show hospitality to strangers. What a concept. And Romans 15 says to welcome one another, same kind of language. Hospitality in the Greek means to love, accept, and be generous to others, meaning it's the heartbeat of community. It's both the front door and the back door. So without it, community cannot exist. So what does this practically mean? What does it mean to actually practice hospitality? Well, often it starts in our homes, whether we like it or not. It's allowing people to see us as we really are. It's allowing people to see those laundry piles or those Velcro hair curlers, you know, or whatever it may be that you have. It's so hard for me to let people see that. I know. I knew. I knew that would hit you, so I thought I'd say it. Hitting me. but, but it's that, that level of vulnerability of people being in your home. Just uh, last night, we got home from a trip in California, and I had some friends pick me up, and I realized at the end of the night that my friends had actually brought my luggage into my bedroom, like had to actually have turned on the light and set my, <laughs> their, my bag on my bed, which was very kind. But I realized like at 11 o'clock, I was like, they were in here. You know what I mean? And 
And it wasn't pretty. There was stuff everywhere, Velcro, Velcro rollers and other things. So uh, there's, this, there's this weird part about letting people into Tim, your space. She's, she's still getting ready for you. <laughs> this takes a lot of time. She's you not know? there quite yet. But she's really close. <laughs> but I say that to say that welcoming people in our homes is not something that comes easy to us. Right. It's costly. There's a vulnerability to letting people see that your, your, your cabinets aren't, or your counters aren't dusted, your laundry is unfolded and maybe not clean, or other things. You have Velcro hair curlers. That's embarrassing in and of itself. <laughs> There's just a vulnerability to it. So pra practicing hospitality is going to be uncomfortable. There's, there's a necessary discomfort in it that helps us actually engage with the deeper, more meaningful things. If we're going to practice hospitality, we've got to learn how to cultivate warm and, and open, safe environments where people are actually having their needs anticipated and then met at the same time. And, and it's not even just as simple as preparing a meal. It's about being intentional with one another, learning to know the good, the bad, and the ugly, being known that way as well. I think we often associate hospitality with, like, where I'm from, Southern Living Magazine, which is amazing. You should follow them on Instagram. Or here, Kinfolk Magazine. We, they associate it with, like, these, like, perfectly, like, postmodern, clean, like, all, like, it has to have a table set with, like, two, like, weird twigs hanging off the side of something or whatever. The lights over yeah, the like top. Yeah, like, the lights of the candles. And the table's, like, like, a quarter mile long. Yeah. And, and like, everybody's Swedish. No table runner. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they all look hungry. <laughs> so it's, like, that, that kind of thing. You know what I'm saying? I think... <laughs> I do think that we think it's some kind of art form, and, and absolutely there is an art form to being hospitable, to being intentional and thoughtful with how we right. welcome people, specifically into our homes. But if we're making uh, our hospitality more about a, a presentation or impressing the people we're serving, that is not hospitality. Hospitality is about welcoming people into our space, good, bad, and ugly, and about them seeing it and then staying. <laughs> That's kind of how that works. Um, it's no secret, I grew up in the South. Tim, we grew up in the same state. <laughs> uh, which is honestly the birthplace of hospitality. And I remember thinking um, when I first came to Portland, like I was actually, I think I was having whatever psychologists would say, like actual culture shock. Like I didn't know what to do because I know that. And, and truly, Portland is, I think, they have some of the nicest people on the planet living here. Absolutely. But hospitality is rare. And I think, man, if I've learned anything, because I'm here, you know, I'm your people now, so. God saved you. Yeah, God <laughs> delivered me. So, but, he, but I'm here, and I think for us, I just want to speak to us, not, yeah. not me speaking to you, but to us, that this is, a, this is a space and place in the church where we actually get to be a prophetic witness against the culture. We, we get to invite people into our spaces, something that's so countercultural in Portland, and allow them to feel loved, cherished, cherished, seen, allow them to experience the generosity and power of God. And, and I think when we practice hospitality, it's a game changer. It's, it's the moment we give people just a glimpse into the reality of the crashing in kingdom of God. So it's something we have got to put into practice and we've got to do it now. 
Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, and out of a culture of hospitality should grow a culture of mission. And before we look at the text, just a quick word on what we mean when we say mission. Uh, we mean three things. First, we mean justice, just as John Mark was talking about. Secondly, we mean your vocation, just doing really good work in the place that you're at throughout the week. But thirdly, and we'll focus on this one, we mean gospel proclamation, actually articulating and speaking the good news of Jesus. Uh, Matthew sums up Jesus' ministry by saying, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news or the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus models for us a life of gospel proclamation. The good news was always on his lips. And when we hear this news and we're transformed by it, proclaiming it has to become part of the fabric of our lives. The news is too good to keep to ourselves. Uh, think back again to Acts 2. We have the day-by-day -day temple attendance, day-by-day -day sharing meals together. But what flows out of that? Look at the second half of 47. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. And as the family of God showed hospitality to one another, as they shared ordinary life together, as they did justice, people who were far from God were brought close. The good news of Jesus was proclaimed. Uh, in other words, gospel proclamation was a part of the family culture. It wasn't this big ordeal, or it, it was simply just what they did. It was the overflow of life with Jesus. They had been blessed to be a blessing. They had received good news to give that news away. They had been invited to be a part of the kingdom in order to invite others. So for us, we follow a rabbi who constantly ate with people who were far from God, that he would step into their situation to share a meal with them, and in that place, invite them to be a part of the kingdom of God. And that's why the, in the family of God, there's always room for one more at the table. The family of God is a family that exists for outside of itself. As much as we love community and we believe in community, your community is not for you. Your community is for the city of Portland that needs to be rescued, that needs to be saved, that needs to hear the good news. Uh, for your community, this can look like a lot of things to lean into a culture of, of mission. Um, one could be just inviting over friends and neighbors who don't follow Jesus and just giving them a meal. And not like some sort of bait and switch where like you pour them water and then you say, you know, Jesus could be living water for you. Like, like that's, <laughs> that's, that's not it, but just actually being with them providing a meal for them, building relationship that, that Wait, you earn. Wait, you're saying I shouldn't do that anymore? You shouldn't. I would refrain from that. that but, but you're earning thing. a voice. You're earning a voice to actually speak the good news to their situation. Uh, or it could look like saying, you know what, we're going to pray for our friends who don't follow Jesus. We're going to do that all the time. Then we're going to invite those friends to come to Alpha. And then beyond that, we're going to go with them the first week to Alpha so they can hear that good news. Really, whatever it takes for us to follow Jesus, because he is the bringer of good news. Okay, I know we're running a little short on time. Do you have two more in you? Yeah, yeah the edited version, maybe? Sure. Go for it. Take yeah. it away. Six, culture of honesty. Also everybody's favorite. Look at uh, Jesus' words in Matthew 5. We talked about it this summer, even. Jesus says, all you need to say is simply yes or no. And then we read further on um, in the New Testament, Paul says, speaking the truth in love, this is in context of us speaking to one another, we're to do this in a loving way. And then in Colossians, 
Let, our, let your conversation always be full of grace. As we read these texts, we see that honesty or telling the truth to one another is the currency of relationships when it comes to the kingdom of God. And the truth is that honesty is one of the most important components we can have in healthy relationships. So if a relationship is going to be meaningful, if there's going to be intimacy, if there's going to be depth, it has to have honesty in it. It's like the oxygen of the relationship. And, and our ambition is to have healthy communities that actually reflect the heart of Jesus. This is who he was. So if we're going to do this, if we're going to have more than just dinner together and just kind of, you know, ping pong our days back and forth with one another, we're going to have to get honest. Um, and I, I think that seems like a no-brainer to a lot of us when we hear that, but we know it's not as easy as it sounds. A lot of us are sitting back and even tonight still suppressing things that have happened in our community, things we don't want to speak out loud to the other person because we're afraid of what's going to happen or we're afraid of the awkwardness that could happen for the group as a whole. And all of that is destructive. It's detrimental to the l actual life, the lifeblood of community. Um, I'm not an expert for sure, but I do know that honesty happens only when people feel safe. Which means that if we want a culture of honesty, we're going to have to work at creating it. Safe spaces are both created and they're cultivated. And we do this when we allow others to speak openly with the assurance that they're not going to be punished for what they say. This is what we do as the people of God. Now, honesty comes in all shapes and sizes, so it means that some of us are going um, to have to be intentional about including that shy person or that wounded person into our space and doing so in such a way that they feel safe to exist and to speak and be present there. For a lot of us, too, it means we're going to have to pull people aside and tell them how they've hurt us or whatever that may look like. And, and on and on and on, whatever it means for you, the hope is that you would be in a community where there is intimacy and friendship and depth as Jesus intended it. And finally, a culture of celebration. Uh, take a look at what Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica. He says, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Or like we read earlier in Romans 12, verse 15, he writes, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. And finally, just because I want you to memorize Acts 2, just to commit that sucker to memory, uh, Paul, uh, Luke writes, They received their food with glad and sincere hearts praising God and having favor with all people. I love those words, glad and sincere hearts. Uh, the family of God is a family that functions in the full range of emotion, and then we enter into all the emotions of life, so that while there are days for weeping with those who weep, uh, there are many days, and arguably more days, for celebrating and rejoicing with those yeah. who re rejoice. Uh, that is because in the family of God, there's always something to celebrate. That's why uh, to a church that's under the boot of the Roman Empire, Paul can write, rejoice always or give thanks. That's why uh, every time followers of Jesus ate together in Acts 2, they ate with glad and sincere hearts. Uh, or as Eugene Peterson puts it, every meal was a celebration, exuberant and joyful as they praised God. In 1 Thessalonians 5, that word for give thanks is eucharistite. Uh, it's, it's where we get the word eucharist, or what we call the Lord's Supper, communion. And oddly enough, communion, or the eucharist, is the only thing that Jesus commands his followers to do every time 
they come together. Every time you come together, remember. Every time you come together, give thanks. Every time you come together, break the bread that is my body and drink the wine, a drink of celebration that is my blood, and celebrate. So for us, there's an invitation to celebration because all of life is a gift from God. We celebrate things big and small. We celebrate birthdays. We celebrate marriage milestones, job promotions, or even just the sweetness of a meal with people that we love. And beyond that, because of what Jesus has done, his life, his death, his resurrection, there is due reason to celebrate. Uh, sin has no hold. Life in the kingdom is on offer for us, and hope has dawned. So we eat, and we remember, and we celebrate. So to recap, before we call it a night, in a day and age of commitment phobia and the new normal of the last-minute text message bail and flakiness, we want to see a culture of commitment at our church and in every community and in all of our lives. In a day and age of overscheduled, overbusy, I only hit church once or twice a month, I only hit community every other week, and I'm there for an hour and a half, and then I bail. We want to slow down and enjoy each other and enjoy each other's company and day-to-day life, actually do life together. In a culture of rampant economic disparity and wealth creation and injustice and from everything from the fashion industry to global everything, we want to see a culture of justice right here in our city. In a culture where people just hole up and like watch Netflix at home and smoke pot, we want to see... You're laughing, you know that's half of our city, right? Like, we want to see a culture of hospitality where the door is open, and whether or not it's Instagram-worthy, we welcome each other in. In a culture where we just get sucked into our own little holy huddle and church together, we want to see a culture of mission where we go with Jesus, who was always hanging out with people far from God. In a culture of shallowness and superficiality and kind of dinner with friends, and how is your week and such nonsense, we want to see a culture of honesty, like a safe place created where we're open and real and transparent, and we feel safe with each other, even if it takes years or months to build that out. And finally, in a culture that's really depressed for the next six months of our life together. We want to see a culture of celebration on a day and age of outrage and anger, and every day we read the news and think, what? We want to be a people who eat together at least once a week with glad and sincere hearts. This is the kind of culture, and that's not an exhaustive list, but this is the kind of culture that is born in the family where God is the Father, and that we want to see created in our church and in every community, the upwards of 70 communities in our church. And as all of you parents in the room know, Ben and others who are great moms and dads, you know that culture is something that is created. Like, you receive a culture if you um, marry into a family, so, you know, when Tammy became a part of the Comer family, all of a sudden now, day after Thanksgiving, we cut down a Christmas tree, right? Before in her family, it was like a plastic tree a week before Christmas. I'm like, none of that. Like, none of that family of origin. No more generational sin. Like, we break, <laughs> we break that off in the name of Jesus and that, right? So, like, you receive a culture. So, if you come into Bridgetown, you're like, oh, I'm new here, and I just, you know, am new to a community. You receive a culture, but 
also, on top of that, culture is created. One of the first things that good parents do is they sit down with child number one or even before child number one and do the, you know, stop, start, continue. What do we want to stop from our families of origin? What do we want to start for our family? And what do we want to continue from our families of origin? All that to say, culture is created one day at a time, one decision at a time with blood, sweat, and tears, one brick at a time. You build the house that is a family. And um, this is the culture that we want to see created through hard work, through prayer, through faithfulness, commitment, all of that. And all of you are invited to this. Like to end the vision series back where we started, everything we do is invitational. All of you are invited. If you're not in a Bridgetown community, you're invited to join one. If you're not um, a part of a local church, you're like here once in a while, we invite you to join. If not us, there's a bunch of other great churches in town. We, you are invited to the family of God. If you're not even a follower of Jesus yet, you don't even know what you think about God, you are invited to follow Jesus and become a part of the family. You're invited to practice the way of Jesus together in Portland. If you're not yet in a Bridgetown community, it's a very simple process. You just sign up for the next basics class. We do it three times a year you just missed it. We have a ton of you that are about to get into a community. The next one's in January, so sign up, bridgetown.church slash basics. Very practical next step. In the meantime, start a triad, which is just where you grab two other people that you meet during the four minutes or whatever, or you already know, or a friend or somebody who follows Jesus, ideally who lives somewhat close to you, and just set a time each week for a dinner or for coffee Thursday morning or Saturday afternoon, whatever your thing is, and just get together, practice the way of Jesus together. We start our next practice next Sunday night, and just start to do life together. But all of this is invitational. You're invited. We want you. We need you. There is a God who is Father and you can become his son or his daughter. Let's all stand together.